thank you for your son Jesus, that his name is so powerful, that his name is what brings us together today. His name is what enables us to love one another. Um, his name is what brings us to freedom and joy. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done through your son Jesus. Amen. Good morning. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Kristen, and I'm thrilled to be with you all this morning. Um, it's not that I like when Kyle and Steph aren't here, but I kind of like when they're not here, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Um, so last week, uh, we started our series on celebration. So this is a series where we're taking a peek at the Feast of Israel so we can learn to be better celebrators. And today we're going to talk about the first feast— that's mentioned in Leviticus, and that's Passover. Now, unlike many of the other feasts we're going to talk about, Passover isn't a week or even a day. It's literally just a meal. And now, there is a, a week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread afterwards, if you want to get technical, but we're not going to focus on that today because we just don't have time. Um, so we're really just going to hone in on the Passover meal. Now, have any of you participated in a Passover or a Seder meal in your lives? Okay, a few, a few. Okay, great. Um, I've only been to a couple in my life, and by far the most interesting one was hosted by some friends of ours, Jeff and Alyssa. Um, they actually have four kids under six now, so if you want to just send up a prayer for them really quick, we can just... <laughs> We just have a quick moment of silence for them. Um, anyway, a few years ago, we were having Passover dinner at their house. And, you know, you're trying to be very serious and somber, and you're, you're reading the, the scriptures and, you know, passing the, the grape juice around or whatever. And the kids are too young to participate, um, but that didn't really stop one of them from interrupting our meal by streaking through the dining room butt naked. <laughs> Now, needless to say, it added some much-needed levity to our Passover meal. Um, and I know that last week Kyle talked about us needing to learn to party a little bit, but this is not that kind of party, okay? So I'm just going to ask you all to keep your clothes on as we go through today, okay? All right. Um, Passover is the first true celebration that's introduced in the Bible, and it comes to the Hebrew people at a time that is so bleak that celebrating probably is the last thing on their minds. It coincides with a pivotal moment for the Hebrews as they are rescued from slavery and delivered to freedom. And therefore, this rhythm of the Hebrew calendar and the Hebrew understanding of time becomes completely tied to their freedom. And so today we're going to take a look at this 3,500-year-old holiday so that maybe we too can start to reorient ourselves and our celebrations around the freedom that we have. So to really understand Passover, we've got to go back to the very first Passover meal, which is in the book of Exodus. And we find Passover instructions in Exodus 12. If you're curious, you can turn there. It's Exodus 12. Um, but before we get into that, let me recap what's happening in Egypt once we get to this point in the story. At this point, the Hebrew people, a once small but scrappy little family, um, had grown, become so numerous that their mere presence in Egypt was a national security threat. 
And out of fear, Pharaoh decides the best course of action is to enslave them, place them under ruthless oppression. Now, some stuff happens, maybe you've heard of it, like with a baby in a basket and a burning bush, you know, like not a big deal. Um, but long story short, the Lord hears the cries of agony from his people, and he puts a plan into motion to rescue them out of slavery. And by the time we get to Passover, God, through his prophets, Moses and Aaron, has commanded Pharaoh to release the Hebrews nine times. Each time, Pharaoh has declined, and each time, God has sent signs and wonders, you may know them as plagues, to show, uh, as a way to show Pharaoh who exactly he's dealing with. And unfortunately, even after frogs and hail and gnats and pestilence, darkness, and lots of other things, Pharaoh just would not budge. So in comes the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborns. Now, because of Pharaoh's stubborn defiance, an angel of the Lord called the Destroyer, very serious, the Destroyer, will descend upon Egypt in the middle of the night and take the lives of every firstborn. And as this promise of death is just kind of looming over Egypt, the Israelites are given instructions that will protect their firstborns. And thus we're introduced to the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12. The meal consists of two main components at this point, although if you have been to a Seder dinner, like a few of you that have, you know there's other elements at play now, even in Jewish contexts. But in the original meal, there's first an unblemished male lamb or goat whose legs were to be left unbroken, which would be cooked in a very specific way, and his, uh, its blood would be spread on their doorposts as a sign for the angel to literally pass over their house. Get it? Pass over? Okay. All right. Uh, and the meal also consisted of unleavened bread, which today is called matzah, and that would have demonstrated the haste in which the Israelites would have had to leave Egypt. There was no time for yeast to rise. So the Lord promised that he would pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the top of the top and sides of the doorframe, the Lord will pass over their homes, and he will not permit his death angel to enter into their house and strike them down. So, those who followed these instructions would be spared from the tragedy of the tenth and final plague. And while the nation of Egypt woke up and grieved their firstborns, the Israelites and anyone else who obeyed the instructions were safe and promptly sent away by Pharaoh on what would become a very long and harrowing journey to the Promised Land. Now, interestingly, this first celebration, this first feast of freedom, took place before the Hebrew people even stepped a single toe outside of Egypt. And let's be honest, they had no idea if this was going to work. And yet, they feasted. They went, they picked out a lamb that was appropriate for their household size, they roasted it, they spread its blood around their doors, they packed their bags, they prepared their unleavened bread, all just on a hope, on the expectation that God would keep his word. Now, can you imagine if we lived like that? Like, actually, if we just expected God to move in big ways, so much so that we were actually celebrating before the miracle? 
Like, what would it look like if we really took God at his word? Because truly, we have no reason to believe that he won't follow through. Just like the Israelites didn't really have any reason to doubt. They had just seen nine huge miracles, signs, wonders, plagues, whatever you want to call them, to base their faith off of. And they said, okay, we're going to do this thing. And yet, often we pray and we wait with bated breath because we're just not 100% sure, right? We don't want to get our hopes up. I get it. I've been there. It's me all the time. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I come here on a Sunday morning, and the last thing I want to do is sing or participate in worship, whether I'm stressed out about work or I'm frustrated that things aren't going my way that week um, or it just feels like I haven't heard anything from God all week. Singing a song is just not high on the list of things I feel like doing. But maybe, like the Hebrews, we are being called to feast even when the reality around us is looking pretty bleak. And when we gather together as a family and worship, we are doing a sort of kind of pre-celebrating, if you will. And little by little, it does prepare our hearts for the good that is coming. It breaks us out of our doom and gloom, which is just so easy to get wrapped up in. And it reminds us that the true reality is beyond what we can see or touch in the right now. So maybe, like the Hebrews, we're being called to celebrate our freedom before we've even tasted it. And so our first lesson of the Passover is to perhaps reshape the win in our celebration. Are we just celebrating in response only or is it, can we also celebrate in expectation? Next, let's see what we're actually celebrating in the context of Passover. So after that night in Egypt, the Passover meal became an annual celebration, or it was supposed to. The Lord commanded that his people return to the Passover year after year to share a meal and to tell the story of that fateful night when he delivered his people from the clutches of slavery and into freedom. Now, in the Passover, as well as some of the other feasts and festivals, God establishes a way for his people not only to remember his faithfulness, but to actually move closer to his holiness through a little something called animal sacrifices. Yeah, we're going to talk about it, okay? I know you don't want to. But it's relevant, I promise. I mean, do you even wonder, even just a little bit, why? Why did they have to kill a lamb for the Passover meal? If you spent any time in Leviticus, you've probably maybe spent a total of two minutes skimming through all the laws about animal sacrifice, like who gets to use a goat, who gets to use two birds instead. It's riveting material. And it's something that we usually don't want to talk about, because it's so far removed from our cultural reality, right? And then, let's be honest, it's a little gross. <laughs> but we're in this together, okay? It's painless. Now, to really understand animal sacrifice, we've got to go back to the beginning, like beginning, beginning, beginning of the world. And if you'll recall, the earth was pure and unblemished when God first created it. That is, until Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thus inviting sin and evil into the world and all that comes with it. Now we think, hmm, that stinks, but God's a good God. He should just be able to, like, snap and all the evil in the world goes away, right? Well, the problem is, is that that evil is so wrapped up in humanity now that 
the snap of the fingers to get rid of all the evil would also get rid of all of us. So, the father does what he does best. He makes a way. Instead, he allows an animal's life to be a substitute to our own in order to remove that stain of evil from us. Now, I know even with this explanation, it still sounds a little weird, but this would have been a deeply powerful, powerful symbol uh, of God's justice and grace to the Hebrew people. And the fancy word for this concept, if you want to jot it down for Scrabble next time, is substitutionary atonement. Ooh. Okay. So, at the Passover, we see that's what the lamb is doing here. The lamb is serving as a replacement or substitute for the firstborn that would have otherwise died. So truly, every house, whether Hebrew, Egyptian, or something else, would have known death in some night, some way that night. Now, this is a system God put in place then. We know, however, that the system didn't always work too well. And the book of Isaiah, Isaiah actually opens up with a condemnation saying that these sacrifices and festivals are worthless. Why? Because the people, even though they're doing them, they're still living evil and corrupt lifestyles. Even the Passover itself, which was meant to be this annual ritual, this feast of freedom and remembrance of what God did in Egypt, it ended up neglected and forgotten. In fact, the Passover is only mentioned as having been celebrated once in the desert, a year after that initial exodus into the wilderness, and then once again, 40 years later, to prepare the next generation to enter into the land of Canaan. And as the history of the Israelites continues throughout the Old Testament, there are large gaps of time where they forget. Celebrations stop, and there's no observation of these rituals, and rebellion just spreads. So the Lord doing what he does, again makes a way. And this time, his name is Jesus. So Jesus was, of course, a Jew. Surprise. By this time, the feasts and festivals would have been celebrated more regularly. This would have been a part of his, cultural, his culture. He would have grown up entrenched in the Hebrew calendar. His formative years would have revolved around trips to the temple, for these holy rituals, he would have helped his mom prepare meals or wipe down all the shelves in the kitchen to get all the yeast out for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, he would have helped prepare Passover meals. And by the time Jesus was here on earth, several generations after that very first Passover meal, I imagine the feast looked a little bit more like what Jewish people celebrate today, or maybe what some of you have participated in. Now, most call the Passover meal a Seder, which is a Hebrew word meaning order, because the meal has become very ordered and regimented uh, over time. And the meal now consists of lots of different things. It uh, has praise, reading of scriptures, a call and response, like scripted questions from children running around, uh, ceremonial hand washing, and of course, eating very, the very symbolic food. The meal uh, and the storytelling that went with Passover became intrinsically important to the Jewish people, and no doubt to Jesus as well. In fact, Passover became a holiday largely defined by those two things, eating and telling. 
Now, there's a picture. Oh, Amanda, you're so good. As you can see, the traditional Seder plate still has the two main elements that I mentioned before, the roasted lamb and the unleavened bread. We've got a couple new things hanging out on there. We've got bitter herbs meant to represent bitter slavery the Hebrews would have been freed from. The karoset, which is uh, apples and walnuts is meant to look like bricks and mortar. And the egg, uh, which you can kind of see on there, not very well, but no one can really agree on what it means anyway, so we're not going to worry about that. <laughs> and the, the whole meal itself is actually punctu is punctuated with four glasses of wine, each of which have their very own specific meaning. Now, this is the kind of Passover celebration Jesus would have grown up experiencing. And it's the exact meal that he would have had with his disciples the same night that he was betrayed. That's right. What we now call the Last Supper, the meal that instituted communion for us as Christians, was actually a Passover meal. So we're going to take a look at it by turning to Luke 22, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles. Again, that's Luke 22. And it's really interesting because while he was here on earth, Jesus talked a lot about the fact that he was going to die, right? Often to the dismay of his disciples. I mean, poor Peter. He just couldn't take it. Anytime Jesus said something, Peter was, no, you've got to be wrong, Jesus. Like, Peter was not having it. Um, and, but there are very few places where Jesus actually communicates the meaning behind his death. And when he wanted to communicate that meaning, he didn't preach a sermon on a mountain or in a boat. He put on a meal. He communicated his purpose in dying by hosting a Passover dinner. He tells them in verse 15, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you, I won't eat of this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, as this Passover meal proceeds, he transforms the meaning of this meal into something altogether new. Right? That's what Jesus does. He takes something and he just goes, whoop, flips it on its head. And we don't get a ton of detail in the Gospels, but, and we kind of have to pull from all of them to get a full picture. But because the Seder is indeed so orderly and regimented, we can spot a few places where Jesus is breaking that order for a very intentional reason. And he's doing so in order to help his disciples and ultimately us understand what on earth he's doing by coming to suffer and die. Now, this Passover was unlike any other the disciples would have experienced in a lot of ways that unfortunately I just don't have time to tell you about. <laughs> but I'm just going to pick one to focus on today. So like I said earlier, there are four cups of wine at Passover, traditionally and each of which symbolize something different. At the beginning of the meal comes the cup of blessing or sanctification. Just opening up the meal like you would, you know, saying a blessing over your dinner, being thankful for Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. Second comes the cup of judgment. Now, some have deduced that Jesus in his final Passover meal actually skips this cup. And then during the meal, we know he took some bread, gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces, gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the next time we see him drinking wine is after the meal, 
which is traditionally the third cup, the cup of redemption. Interesting. This third cup is what most believe that, uh, he passed around saying, uh, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So why skip the second cup? What's the deal, Jesus? Well, because Jesus' first arrival on earth was not meant for judgment and wrath. It was meant for redemption. Don't worry, his second arrival will be for judgment and wrath, but that's later. With this third cup, he signifies that his blood will have very much the same purpose that the original Passover lamb had. To be a substitute, to take on the death that was rightfully ours. To atone for all humanity and redeem all of creation. So for now, for that night, he saves the cup of judgment for later. He was to partake of this cup all on his own later that night. And therefore, take on all of the judgment and wrath of the Father as it was poured out on him at the cross. Is it no wonder then, in his moment of desperation in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now we know that the Father doesn't remove this cup from him. And his fate is to suffer and to die. And that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is what makes Jesus the Passover lamb of the whole world. Now, indeed, the parallels to Passover don't end at the Last Supper. Uh, I, and I can't help myself but tell you a few more of them. So Jesus, like the Passover lamb, is wholly unblemished, the only begotten Son of God the Father, and the only sinless man to walk the earth. And we know he is led like a sheep to the slaughter, as Isaiah foretells, silent before his accusers. And as he hangs on the cross, the Roman soldiers try and give him a drink of wine vinegar on a sponge, on a branch, a hyssop branch. Yeah, the exact same branch that the Israelites would have used to spread the blood around their doorposts. What? Come on. Sorry, it's just so exciting. And then after Jesus' last breath, the soldiers came and pierced his side rather than break his legs, much like the Passover lamb. This fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah and really just illustrates this beautiful connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus. But you know what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't actually stop with just atoning for sin by shedding his blood. It's in his resurrection that he completely breaks the curse of sin and death. He lives on to continuously offer his life to any who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice. One that all previous animal sacrifices, birds, goats, Passover lambs, all of them are pointing to. Yahweh laid the foundation of the Passover in Egypt so that Jesus could one day come and fulfill it to the fullest. Now as amazing as all of that is, do you know that Jesus actually left the Passover meal unfinished? There are four cups of wine, right? 
there still awaits that fourth cup of the Passover, which wouldn't you know, is the cup of praise. After all, after the third cup, Jesus says he will not partake of any more wine until the kingdom of God has come. Looking ahead to Revelation 19, where the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, we see that the party starts with a vast crowd like thunder or rushing waves. What are they doing? Praising God. That is the time to partake of the fourth and final cup of Jesus' Passover. After the Lord's justice and mercy have prevailed completely over all of the evil of the world and the final enemy has been defeated, the church, his bride, us, we will be welcomed into the kingdom of God with a feast. One more greater and more beautiful feast of true freedom awaits. One more celebration to look forward to. One more Passover. So I don't know about you, but this is all pretty overwhelming, right? This is a lot to take in. We talked about the Passover informing when we celebrate. Hopefully we can see what we're celebrating after all of that. Now let's look at how we, in the year 2022, can celebrate Passover today. Well, the good news is that we actually celebrate Jesus' new iteration of the Passover meal every Sunday through communion. See, you have been celebrating Passover all along, and maybe you didn't even realize it. Good work. Good job. Give yourself a hand. Thank you. Thank you. All right. You're like, yes, check. I have celebrated something. Praise the Lord. Um, now, if you're like me, you grew up in a church where communion was celebrated maybe semi-regularly or for my Catholics in the room. You got that stuff every week, baby. Good for you. Good for you. But for me, it was, it was presented as this ritual where we have to get very serious, right, very quiet. And the synths would come up and very, like, moody music. And if you were in one of those churches that had fog machines, oh, man, watch out. Watch out, okay? And we had to just sit there and get yourselves right before you came up to get the, to get the meal. And for me, as a little, you know, 12-year-old, I just look back and I just remember panicking all the time. Because maybe I forgot a sin to repent of. Or maybe, if, even if I remembered all of them, maybe I wasn't actually sorry enough. Like, okay, was I act, did I actually feel bad that I stole my sister's clothes? Or did I just not want to have to sit in this pew and everyone know I was a dirty, rotten sinner? I don't know. It was rough, okay? So as an adult, and after spending some time with the Passover, my feelings on communion have changed, thank goodness. And while it is still a good thing to get quiet and serious and repentant before approaching the table, I'm not convinced that that's all communion is meant to be. And perhaps it's time to start treating communion like the celebration that it is. And when we partake of communion, I have to tell you, something really amazing happens. We are tapping into the full history of the Passover all the way back to that very first Feast of Freedom over 3,000 years ago. We are joining hands with our Hebrew brothers and sisters and spreading blood on our doorposts in hopeful anticipation. We are seated with the disciples who sat at that very different, very interesting Passover meal with Jesus, just trying to fathom the depths in which he loved the world. We join in on the biggest family dinner in history. 
and one that transcends space and time with freedom both in our rear view and out in front of our windshield. Peace behind us and peace before us. As N.T. Wright puts it, this present moment of taking communion somehow holds together the past event of the Lord's death and the great future when God's world will be made new under Jesus' loving rule. And past and future come rushing together, pouring an ocean of meaning into this moment called now. And a few years ago, the Knowing Faith podcast put it best when they described the Lord's Supper as a time to A, look back at God's faithfulness, B, look around at God's family, or C, look ahead to God's feast. And much like the Passover, our time taking communion is meant to help us, excuse me, recall all of the good that God has done, all of the things he has liberated us from personally. And it's also meant to be a celebration occurring within the context of family, spiritual family. Both those in this room, those who have gone before us, and those who will come after us, both in this local church, but also in the global church. And it's meant to be consumed as a foretaste of a bigger, better feast to come. So today, we're going to take communion. How could we not? But we're not doing it out of tradition or obligation. And I'm not even going to ask you to sit there and get yourself right before you come up. Because this meal isn't for the perfect, it's for the hungry. And so the table is open to you. I will ask you to consider, however, the father, how is the Father getting your attention today? Is he calling you to look back, to remember his faithfulness? Is he directing your attention horizontally to his family? Is there someone to care for, to celebrate with? Or is he focusing you in on his future feast, the hope that is set before you? Now, wherever your focus is, celebrate that. Do as the Hebrews were directed from the very beginning. Taste, eat, feast, and then tell someone about it. Celebrate this Passover meal to its fullest. Now, if I could have the folks serving uh, communion who've been pre-selected, please come forward. Thank you. And the band, you're so wonderful. Thank you. This bread and cup has been graciously pre-blessed by Kyle since he's not here today. That way we're able to do it because can you imagine me preaching that sermon and not having communion? <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I just ask that as you come to feast, you come down the middle aisle and then go back to the sides. Let me get these out. Hold on. Okay, so you'll be given the bread, and then you'll dunk it in the wine like a nacho, as Kyle likes to say. 
Uh, and then you'll taste and see that the Lord is good. And there will also be some people in the back to pray for you if you need some prayer or if you just want to celebrate something. Um, I know that they would love to hear it. So I'm going to read from Luke one more time. And again, just take a second to ask the Father how he's getting your attention today. Looking back at his faithfulness, around at his family, or ahead to his feast. When the time came, Jesus and the, the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup of wine, gave thanks to God for it, and he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The table is open.